If you've been coming to Parkview for a while, you might be a little confused because normally we'd share communion at the end and then pray and dismiss. So if you're ready to go, sorry. You've got to bear with me for about a half hour. My name is Glenn uh, Westberg. I serve on staff here at Parkview, and I'm glad to do so. I'm going to continue in the series that we're in this morning uh, or this summer. I want to start with a little story, though. My wife and I have um, been married 16 years now, and oh boy, on and off. Yeah, how about it? Thank you. Thank you. Um, on and off, we've tried to do our own taxes. Now, those of you who just applauded might go, boo, that was dumb. <laughs> Why do you do that? Well, we, we, uh, when, when life was simple before we had kids, you know, we, we just went online and used the Quicken thing, you know, and did that for a few years. And then when life, we started to have kids, um, life got a little bit more complicated. We realized we're in over our head here, so we went to um, a professional. When we went to the professional, we uh, found out much to our chagrin that um, we had made an honest mistake for the last few years, um, which could have cost us um, thousands of dollars. So we were faced with a choice to make. Um, Obviously, God's word is incredibly clear. Jesus said, you know, um, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, give to God what's God's. So that was a no-brainer. We knew we had to file amended returns, um, but we also knew that doing that would be um, potentially devastating to us financially. So we were faced with two realities. The reality of what we knew to be true in God's word, which was a no-brainer, we need to pay our taxes, and the reality that obeying God's word might devastate us financially. From time to time, every one of us faces two realities that seemingly are on a collision course. Scripture clearly tells us that God is good and he's loving and he's powerful. And that's a reality that most of us who follow Christ cling to like every day. And in fact, we're pretty quick to tell others about that reality. Then something happens that threatens to shake that reality of God's goodness and love and power to its very foundation. Maybe after years of a seemingly healthy and stable marriage, uh, a spouse decides to leave. Maybe a child is taken from us at an early age due to an accident or an illness. Or a couple ready to retire finds themselves needing to return to work because the economy has reduced the money they had saved to an amount that can't sustain their plans. Maybe a recent college grad simply can't find work in their field of study or a teenager who loves God and desires to follow him, loses friends because of her decision to follow Christ. All of these realities can seem to fly in the face of the reality of God's goodness and his love and his power and and can cause us to feel disillusioned and bitter and angry, even confused or resentful. So the question before us this morning is what do we do when we face two seemingly opposing realities that are on a collision course? In our lives. As I just mentioned, we're in the summer series called Moonwalking with God, which is about us investing time on Sunday mornings to fine tune, as Ray would say, the art of remembering who God is and what He's done for us by revisiting and reflecting on Old, Te- Old Testament stories that are too important to forget. This morning, we're going to look at a 60 year old man who found himself smack in the middle of two realities that were on a collision course in his life. His name was Jacob. 
And before we look at a very significant time in his life, I just would like to invite you to pray with me. Father, you know that we all come here um, from different vantage points. We have tons on our mind. We have tons on our heart. We have tons on our chest. We feel oftentimes like we're carrying a lot on our shoulders. You know, I'm just so glad where we come from and where we are right now. And so, Father, would you meet us exactly where we are right now? We all come here, regardless of where from. We all come here with a desire to hear from you. And so, Lord, I would just ask that you would use me, a very, very imperfect and broken vessel, but that you would speak through me, God, as your servant, that you would use your word, and that you would teach us things that would change us. And we pray these things in the precious and mighty name of Christ. Amen. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 32 this morning. If you're going to use uh, one of the Bibles in the chair rack in front of you, it's on page 34. But there's a lot of background before we get to Genesis chapter 32 uh, in Jacob's life. So for the sake of time, I would just like to uh, do my best to summarize to get us to Genesis chapter 32. Jacob was Abraham's grandson, himself very much a child of promise. When Jacob's grandfather Abraham was 75 years old, God called him to leave his home and to set out for a land for the land of Canaan, the promised land. It was at this time that God first made a promise to Abraham. God said to him, I will make you into a great nation and I'll bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, were unable to have children, so this promise seemed a little strange to both of them. But 25 years after this original promise to Abraham, Jacob's dad, Isaac, was born. Sometime after Isaac was born, Isaac grew, and God tested Abraham by telling him to sacrifice Isaac on an altar. Abraham obeyed God, and God spared Isaac, providing a ram for Abraham to sacrifice instead of Jacob's dad. Isaac eventually married a girl named Rebekah, and 20 years later, they had twin sons. The the one born first was named Esau. The younger was named Jacob because Jacob actually came out holding on to Esau's heel. So Jacob's name um, means he grasps the heel or figuratively he deceives. Eventually, God appeared to Isaac and renewed the promise he originally made to Abraham. Now, God told Isaac, don't be afraid, Isaac, for I'm with you. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant, Abraham. As Jacob and his brother Esau grew, the Bible tells us that Jacob was a quiet man who stayed among the tents while his brother Esau was a skillful hunter. And we're told that Jacob's dad loved Esau. But his mother, Rebecca, loved Jacob. So basically, the Bible calls Jacob a mama's boy, pretty much. So since Esau was born a few minutes before Jacob, Esau had the right of the firstborn son, which meant the inheritance of Isaac would go to him. This was, a, this was called the birthright in the Old Testament, and it was a really, it was a big deal. 
Well, as Jacob and Esau got older, one day Esau came in from a long day of hunting and he was famished. He was really hungry. So, of course, Jacob was hanging out with mom among the tents, probably working on a new stew recipe that he saw in a a magazine somewhere or something. And Esau asked Jacob, you know, he smelled the stew. Hey, let me have something to eat. And Jacob realized that he had an opportunity here to live up to his name. You know, he deceives. And he said, "Uh, yeah, I'll be glad to give you some of the stew, but first you got to swear to me you'll sell me your birthright. And Esau allowed his hunger to get into the way of better judgment and said, yeah, whatever, I'm hungry. So just give me something to eat. And Jacob said, you may swear to me. All right, I'll swear to you. So that's what happened. Esau Esau sold his birthright to, to Jacob for something to eat. Now years go by and Jacob's dad Isaac is blind and he's growing old. So he calls Esau, his firstborn, the hunter, into his tent and he tells Esau, go out to the fields and hunt some game and prepare it the way I love and then come back in and let me eat a meal that that I really love, you know, um, from you and then I'm going to bless you, my firstborn son. Again, receiving an official blessing from the family patriarch was a really big deal. It meant to set the future course of the one receiving the blessing, blessing almost in a prophetic sort of way. The problem was that Isaac's wife, Rebecca, was just outside the tent and overheard her husband tell this to Esau. And remember, she loved Jacob, right? So she calls Jacob over and together they come up with a plot to steal Esau's blessing. And that's exactly what happens. Jacob goes along with the plan and ends up receiving his dad's blessing that was meant to go to Esau because his dad was blind, wasn't quite sure who it was. You kind of sound like Jacob, but you smell like Esau because he put on Esau's clothes and stuff. He's like, all right, whatever. So he gives his blessing to the younger. And this is what he blessed him with. In Genesis 27, it says, May God give you heaven's dew and earth's riches, an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. It's quite a blessing. Meant for Esau, stolen by Jacob. Now, as you can imagine, when Esau came in, the Bible says that that Jacob just pretty much got out the door of the tent when Esau arrives with this meal that he had prepared And his dad is bewildered. And then suddenly, I think the reality hit in, hit him and said, your brother was just here and stole your blessing. And as you can imagine, Esau the hunter didn't take that very well. He was very upset and he vowed to kill his brother and get revenge on him. So with this being the case, Jacob's mom told Isaac, uh, um, uh, I'm sorry, Jacob's mom told Jacob to get out of Dodge and head to her homeland so he could find a wife from there and settle down, raise a family, and then avoid Esau's wrath. And as Jacob was on his way to his mother's homeland, he stopped to rest one night and God appeared to him and told him, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you'll spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I'll bring you back to this land. 
I won't leave you until I've done what I promised you. This is now the third time that God renewed his original promise to Abraham. Jacob is over 40 years old at this point in his life. While he was in Haran, the land of his mother, he married and became a very, very wealthy man. About 20 years pass. God tells him to get up and return once again to where he and his brother Esau was born. So Jacob and everything he has begins the journey back toward Edom where his brother Esau is living. Now, you know that Jacob burned some major bridges, right? He burned a major bridge with his dad by deceiving his dad. He burned a major bridge with his brother twice, once by, you know, making his brother sell his birthright to him for, for some stew, and then, of course, deceiving his dad and, and stealing his blessing. And now he's heading back to see his brother after 20 years of being apart because of his brother's vow to kill him. He's now returning as a 60-year-old man who has two wives, two maidservants, 11 sons, and at least one daughter. He's also very, very wealthy with a huge amount of livestock and servants. There's no doubt Jacob is apprehensive about seeing his brother for the first time in 20 years. When he fled his brother, he was a single guy with nothing but a walking stick to be responsible for. Now he's got wives, kids, servants, most likely thousands of head of uh, animals under his care. So in preparation for his meeting uh, with Esau, he sends messengers ahead just to get an idea of whether or not Esau is still mad about the whole blessing, birthright, misunderstanding. And as he sends his servants on ahead to speak with Esau, this is what he says to them. He says, um, tell your servant or tell Esau, your servant Jacob says, I've been staying with Laban and I've remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, men servants and maid servants. Now I'm sending this message to my Lord that I might fa- that I might find favor in your eyes. And so his servants off they go, and Jacob waits to hear the news, hoping for the best. And sure enough, before too long, his servants come back to him and let him know, uh, yeah, somehow news got to your brother because he's already on the way. And um, by the way, he's got 400 men with him. So. That's Jacob's story in a nutshell. That brings us up to Genesis chapter 32, where we're at this morning. Jacob had lived up to his name, deceitful. He's burned bridges with his dad. He's burned bridges with his brother. And now he has to face the music. So in Genesis chapter 32, we read that Jacob's apprehension at this point immediately turns, as you can imagine, to great fear and distress. So Jacob has an idea. He splits all his possessions and family into two camps, thinking that if Esau attacks one camp, at least the other camp has a chance to survive. Then Jacob prays. And this is what he prays in verses 7 through 12. O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I'm unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness that you've shown your servant. I only had my staff when I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid he'll come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted." That night at the ford of the Jabbok River, which is basically on the border of the promised land, Jacob stops for the night. He first sends the huge gift of about 550 animals to his brother 
by his servants, which he hopes will appease his brother, his brother's anger and save his life along with everything that he owns. And then we read that Jacob took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 sons and crossed the fords of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. After sending his wives and kids and all his possessions away, the Bible says in, in Genesis 32, 23, that he was left alone. I would like you just to think for a second of what it must have been like for Jacob to have been traveling with perhaps thousands of head of livestock, many, many servants, 11 sons, uh, two wives, <laughs> two maid servants, just a bunch of people and animals and things traveling for days and days, at least over a week and a half, to suddenly be left alone with nothing but the sound of the waters in the background rushing by from the Jabbok River. With all the apprehension, with all the fear that he must have been feeling right now, he finds himself alone. Do you see the two realities at play here in in Jacob's life? On the one hand, we have the reality of God's promise. First to his grandfather, then to his dad, and then renewed to him that God will bless the world through him and his descendants. A very, very clear promise of God. And then he has the other reality of his brother who's angry, who's coming with 400 men, possibly to wipe him out and everything that he owns. These are two very real realities looking like they're on a collision course. What does Jacob do? Well, what he does next is what I hope that you and I can not only learn from, but begin to actively incorporate into our lives. When Jacob was faced with these two realities, he got alone, he faced God, and he wrestled with him all night long. This is what we read in Genesis chapter 32, verses 24 through 28. When Jacob was left alone, Uh, And a man, so Jacob was left alone, I'm sorry, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he couldn't overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched and he wrestled as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I won't let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what's your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. There's not a whole lot of insight into the Hebrew word translated wrestle here in this passage because it is the only time it is ever used in the entire Old Testament. But I can tell you this. I'm pretty sure Jacob and God weren't actually hitting each other over the head, you know, with like uh, folding chairs and climbing on the rings and, and standing on the ropes and, you know, doing pile drivers and all that kind of stuff and some sort of like precursor to our modern day uh, WWF. I'm pretty sure that if it was a real wrestling match, real physical wrestling match between Jacob, a 60-year-old mama's boy, and God, that God would probably be the heavy favorite. Though Jacob was left with a physical limp afterwards, and I think this is most likely a gift from God to remind Jacob of the life-changing nature of this night. I think it's safe to say that Jacob was wrestling with God all night in prayer. In fact, we get some very, very valuable insight into this passage uh, from Hosea chapter 12, verses 2 through 5. And this is what we read in Hosea. The Lord has a charge to bring against Judah. 
He will punish Jacob according to his ways and repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he grasped his brother's heel. As a man, he struggled with God. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged for his favor. He found him at Bethel and talked with him there. The Lord God Almighty, the Lord is his name. So we know from Hosea that Jacob was weeping and begging for God's favor. And we know from Genesis chapter 32 that Jacob was honest about his fear and he was quick to remind God of the promises God made to him. I think the prayer recorded earlier in Genesis chapter 32 verses 9 through 12 is a summary of his wrestling all night God all night with God in prayer. It was a prayer of humility, it was a prayer of gratitude. It was a prayer uh, a prayer of repentance and and a prayer of of need. The best thing that Jacob did when he found himself faced with two opposing realities that were on a collision course was turn toward God to wrestle with him in prayer, to do serious business. Jacob stands with other spiritual heavyweights who also turn toward God in honest and gut-wrenching prayer when faced with opposing realities. Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his crucifixion. He had the reality of God's call in his life and the reality of an excruciating death that he faced. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 5 that during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Job, after he faced the reality of God's goodness and losing everything he had, Turn to God in honest prayer in Job chapter 3. Elijah, the prophet, after faced with the reality of a spiritual and political victory, a great victory in, in Israel, and then the reality of the queen's vow to take his own life, to hunt him down, he found himself on his knees before God, honestly wrestling with him in prayer in 1 Kings chapter 19. In his book, A Land Between, The Land Between, Finding God in Difficult Transitions, pastor and author uh, Jeff Mannion writes this, there are times when God allows us, as he did the Israelites, as he did Moses, to suffer need. This need may be physical, emotional, spiritual, material, or relational. Such needs have a tendency either to discourage and debilitate us or to drive us into God's presence where we ask for his guidance and provision. God sees us, everything about us. He knows our need and he's trustworthy. He wants us to learn to trust him to provide. So here's what all of this boils down to this morning. If you hear nothing else, please remember this. In Genesis chapter 32, I believe God God gives us permission, if not an invitation, to contend, strive, or wrestle with him in prayer, when we're beyond ourselves due to the harsh and oftentimes confusing realities of life. I want to point out before I close uh, some, some things that, that I think it's important to note, um, that God blessed Jacob because, number one, because of his willingness to get alone with God. I don't know why God, uh, Jacob would have sent everybody off to the other side of the river in order to be alone. I can't figure that out as I read this. The only 
answer that I have is because he realized he was beyond himself. All his servants, his sons, they weren't going to help him against 400 men with his brother if it came, if push came to shove. I think he realized the only place he could turn was to God. So he sent off his wives, his sons, his daughter, his servants, everybody, and remained alone in order to turn toward God and do some serious business with him. And God blessed that. God also blessed Jacob's tenacious claim to God's promises. In his prayer in Genesis chapter 32, verses 9 through 12, again, I think that's just a synopsis of what he prayed all night long. Twice we read that, that Jacob reminded God of his promises. O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I'll make you prosper. God, you said this to me. You said you're going to make me prosper. Then in verse 12, After outlining the predicament he was in, Jacob says, but you have said, I'll make you prosper and I'll make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which can't be counted. God, I don't get where I'm at right now because you said this to me and yet it looks like my brother's about to annihilate me and everything I own and all your promises are going to be nullified. I don't get it. I don't know where else to turn, but I'm going to get alone and I'm just going to be honest with you. I think God blessed that. In the New Testament, we read in 1 John, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. God also blessed uh, Jacob because of his honesty. As Jacob prayed, he was quick to acknowledge the fact that he was unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness that God had shown him. Jacob was being real with God. Jacob knew that he wasn't totally innocent here. Jacob knew that he was facing an angry brother because of decisions that he made 20 years earlier. But yet in obedience to God, he got up and he started to face the music. But before he did, he was honest with God. Told him how afraid he was. And I think God also, lastly, blessed his persistence. I won't let you go unless you bless me, he said. Jacob didn't just wrestle with God for a couple three-minute rounds. He was in this match for the long haul, all night long. Sometimes I think I understand what it means to wrestle with God, and sometimes I don't. I was talking to my wife the other day about this as I was preparing this, and um, you know, I go through things in life where, where I see two realities on a collision course. I know God. I know his goodness. I know his call on my life. But then I see other things in my life that I just don't get. Maybe I'm even interceding for another person. Maybe I'm interceding for somebody's marriage or for a friend who's going through a bunch of hardships. And I'm just pouring my heart out for God. And, and I don't necessarily see an answer right away. And I wonder, am I really wrestling Or do I just give up when I get tired? I don't think that's what Jacob did. I don't think you can travel all day long with all that he had, send them across the river, and then stay up all night wrestling with God in prayer and not be exhausted. But he didn't give up. He refused to give up until he received God's blessing. 
I think there's something really, really important there for us to learn when we wrestle with God. It's one thing to be gut level honest with him. It's one thing to turn toward him. It's one thing to get alone with him. But it's another thing altogether to continue to press in until we receive a blessing from God. And remember, if there's nothing else that you remember from this morning, remember this. In Genesis 32, God is giving us not just permission, but I think an invitation to wrestle with him. And I wonder if the victory in Jacob's life, half of it wasn't the fact that he decided to do that, to wrestle God. Peter's going to come and uh, close with a song. And as he does, this is what I'm going to invite you to do. Uh, hopefully you have a, a, a folder in, in front of you, a, a bulletin, um, and there's a pencil in the, in the chair rack in front of you, or if, if you don't have a pen or pencil to write with your, on your own. I want to give you a few minutes to identify one of two things. Either identify an area in your life where you see a reality that seems to be on a collision course with what you know to be true of God. And maybe you just have never felt the freedom or maybe you have never heard the invitation from God to wrestle with him, to be honest with him, to get alone, to face him, and to let it all out. So I'm just going to, as he plays, I'm just going to give you an invitation to just jot some things down. God, I want to wrestle you with this. I got this to talk to you about, Lord. This is something that I've had on my heart for a long time, and I've never felt the freedom to, to say it to you. Well, time's come. And secondly, um, there will be some psalms up here. There's a list of psalms. These are just some. The psalmists were never, ever shy about being honest with God. These psalms are just a a, a sampling uh, of psalms where the psalmists are honest with God. I would jot these down. And when you get time, go through them and allow these psalms to give voice to your own struggles, fears, and questions.